0: We can actually solve stuff if we argue about things, you know, when we get to the argument. Without um, dismissing them for their identity get, or yeah. their
1: political affiliation or using ad hominem or, you know, logical... We can fix fa- stuff.
0: Freedom of speech. Fundamental
2: rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen.
1: You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast. Brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. This past weekend, I got a memory on Facebook that it was five years ago this week, I think, that Coddling of the American Mind came out, and we had recorded a podcast about that, and there was a picture from the podcast, and we were in our old office on North Capitol, which gave me some nostalgia, but five years later, you have another book coming out, Canceling the American Mind coming out when? October? October 17th. October
0: 17th? Me and uh, Ricky Schlott, uh, 20-something Wunderkind, um,
1: and a uh, foreword by John Haidt. What's the origin story of this?
0: Uh, well, it's actually kind of funny. Um, Ricky reached out to me um, and John because she dropped out of sco- uh, college, out, out of NYU in 2020. Um, when uh, COVID started, which I think was exactly what everyone should have done. Like the the idea of going to school during during the lockdown just seemed to miss the whole point. Um, But she read Coddling the American Mind, thought it was completely correct. um, And she wanted to interview me about the idea that maybe... COVID itself would present the kind of challenge that would give kids kind of the, self, the sense of self-efficacy that we argue that they don't actually have, or that, that at least ones with helicopter parents aren't giving their kids. Mm-hmm. So there was an idea that kind of like COVID could potentially uncoddle kids. Now, she says that that ended up not really working Yeah, I was going to say, did that work <laughs> out? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm a little bit more kind of like, yeah, we probably don't hear about the ones who actually rose to the challenge and were, we're able to. Yeah, and I'm sure it's different in every family. Yeah. So originally, um, she started writing for Reason Magazine, she started writing for the New York Post and a couple other places, and it was clear that she was just this exceptionally clear thinker and writer, particularly, not, not, not even just for her age, for anyone's age. So uh, she became a Fire Fellow, um, and we were talking about actually doing a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind together, which having a Gen Z young woman made so much sense because so much of coddling is about, you know, problems suffered by Gen Z young women. So, you know, with with two Gen Xers, me and me and Height, you know, writing about it, probably wouldn't be as persuasive as actually having someone who And John
1: has another book project yes. ongoing, so that's why he's not involved, yeah. although he's writing the forward for he, the he book. He did write the forward, yeah. yeah. Um, and
0: so we were talking about writing this follow-up to coddling, but then I was watching all these people like still trying to claim that cancel culture didn't exist or nothing happened or it's a hoax. And it's like, okay, given I define cancel culture as, a, I have a very simple definition of it, which is just an uptick on, on people, you know, either being threatened with or losing their jobs or being expelled uh, or tenured professors being fired that really started to accelerate around t- a 2014 and really went off completely off the rails in 2017 and after, and 2020 and 2021, just completely nuts. The idea that there are still people saying that nothing actually happened was something like, no, that's part one, we have to address that. And to be clear, we talk about threats from the right and the left, um, and, but the idea that nothing happened in the last you know, eight, eight to five to eight years is completely insane. So that was goal one goal two of it was to actually talk about this idea of rhetorical fortresses that I think they have both on the right and the left, which is to sort of situate cancel culture as being part of a way to win arguments without winning arguments is the way we put it in the book mm-hmm. that essentially You know, like, if you're having an ongoing debate about a hot button issue, you know, you can persuade and you can marshal facts and you can, you know, have a discussion, or you can make that person terrified that, that, that to disagree will actually cost them their job. And guess which way is faster and easier in the age of Twitter? So we try to talk about, you know, um, about this as a larger, lousy way of arguing. And then the bottom third is talking about ways to get out of this trap that we're in, um, and we talk about ways corporations can stay out of the culture war. We talk about reforms potentially for higher ed, K through twelve, cetera. Mm-hmm. So we do try much to, like coddling at the end of that book. Yeah, but but in coddling we spent just a little bit of time talking about reforms, whereas a good third of the book in this case is is directed at at, um, at reforms.
1: Yeah, with with cancel culture, so it it was very much a part of the public conversation there for a couple of years. I think. 2020 might have been the peak, 2021, do you think it's waning a little bit? Do you think there's a – because there you have seen this counter-narrative that is pushing back against co- uh, cancel culture in a way that you didn't really see, aside from the Harper's letter and some yeah. things like that. It seems like the normies, so to speak, yeah. ha- recognize what cancel culture is and are more skeptical of it yeah. than they were, say, in 2019, 2020, 2021.
0: I feel like I'm hearing a lot of cancel culture being over, but a lot of times it seems to be from kind of the same people who said cancel culture didn't happen in the first place. So it's kind of like cancel culture uh, didn't happen, and by the way, it's over. It's like okay, choose one. <laughs> um, but the but the but for those of the, who do actually believe something weird happened and, and something troubling happened, um, I do think that there is some common sense pushing back at the moment. But I, I'm not going to believe we're in the clear until actually, you know, the 190 professors that we talk about in the book start getting their jobs back. Some of these punishments are, uh, and I think that's something like 700, 600 punishments of professors. The best data we have is actually on professors. Um, when we start seeing better... Uh, results from students saying whether or not they're afraid to talk to their friends or their professors. Mm-hmm. And I think that at every stage, and there is some hope on this one, the, the, uh, the presidents who, um, there was 13 presidents who signed the letter saying that they're going to commit to freedom of speech. But the proof, you know, needs to be in the pudding. And right now, I feel like at every stage, and this is an argument we make in the book from K through 12 on up, there are con- what I call conformity inducing mechanisms. Um, you need to actually Change that to non-conformity encouraging mechanisms. Um, if you really want to pursue truth, if you really want better ideas and innovation, and that has to start on day one in orientation. That has how that has to start in in K through twelve. So the idea, like I, I think that people are saying, cancel culture is over. I've kind of likened that to the British saying that they won the Revolutionary War because by you know 1785 the Americans stopped fighting. <laughs> it's like yes, because you lost. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I think speech is sufficiently chilled that you don't, you know, you don't, you don't have to burn all the witches. You know, enough to scare people. Campus
1: free speech, because you've done it for what twenty over twenty years at this point. Uh, Twenty-two years on October second. Yeah, I've done it for over eleven newbie. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, can be a polarizing issue, but I don't think it's as polarizing as cancel culture, yeah. whether it actually exists. So when you did Coddling of the American Mind, you're, you you worked campus free speech issues into this kind of broader yep. narrative and this investigatory story about what's happening to young people. Uh, this book more squarely focuses on cancel culture. Do you think the reviews for this book are going to be as, <laughs> as across-the-board positive as they were for Coddling? Oh, there no. was, like, one bad review in, for Coddling from The Guardian, from the which Guardian. was maybe a little predictable. Yeah, But this one... Well, the the Guardian
0: just seemed to be trying to argue that we were um, soft right, uh, but basically that that and essentially like bad people liked us, so therefore we had to be bad too, and that's actually a specific. We actually addressed that. Yeah, that Pamela room. had a name for it, right? Uh,
1: the the um, moral pollution.
0: Moral pollution. That yeah. essentially being being close to somebody basically made made you evil. So so we addressed that a little bit um, in the book. I don't now. We really meant the subtitle "Coddling the American Mind." How um, ba- uh, good intentions, good intentions, and bad ideas, you know, are setting up a generation for failure. Because we really do think that a lot of what we're talking about in we were talking about in coddling was parenting, trying trying to be good parents, and K through 12 trying to be good, but just with some bad ideas. Cancel culture. There's no way to address it, and pretend that people who go after you know who chase people down on their houses, who issue death death and rape threats to their children, are um, good of heart, <laughs> you know, so like this is one where to order, in order to address it honestly, I feel like you almost are bound to write a more polarizing book because you know people who actually make the argument that the cancellors had the best of intentions i 'm like i'm sorry, no, they, they were going after their enemies by any means necessary, and that is not something I find commendable yeah. do you oh yeah
2: do you find that this idea that cancel culture isn't happening or didn't happen, of a piece with this, you know, relatively well. Not, it's probably not a relatively recent phenomenon. The relatively current phenomenon of, you know, alternative facts. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, I've noticed that generally the cancel culture doesn't exist. It came from people who came at the issue with the fact that it couldn't possibly exist because it doesn't actually, like, agree with my politics and then work backwards. I I mean, I watch people literally know nothing about this topic, just being like, oh, it's just a hoax. I'm like, you don't, you literally don't know anything (laughs) about what's been going on on campus for the past couple years. I don't know how seriously I should take it. I do think it is part, actually, no, it's a good question. Because, um, I... (laughs) I think that a big one of the reasons why we ended up in this situation is, um, and here it's going to get a little boring. Um,
1: I, uh, oh man. I, 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 Greg forgot to turn his phone I on. I forgot. He's to turn new, my phone. You're going to have to get I'm, better at uh, remembering that with all the podcasts you're going to be doing. So yeah, I was, I was giving the very exciting, it's just about to get
0: boring. Exactly. Um, in law school, I, I did six credits on studying censorship during the Tudor dynasty, um, because I wanted to get at some of our ideas, for where our ideas of prior restraint come from. Um, and people usually, I mean most people associate prior restraint with the Stuart dynasty, but actually, I realize actually most people don't have opinions on prior restraint. And, um, but those of us who do. Um, and ba- uh, and this is a debate that that I feel like I sometimes even have with my co-author to a degree is that anytime you introduce a huge number of people into a conversation it changes the dynamics and particularly and so the printing press was the best example of millions of people being added to a global conversation and what was the result eventually you know flourishing of knowledge and uh, and and uh, scientific revolution and all these kind of like uh, amazing uh, uh, amazingly positive things but in the short run an increase in the witch trials, a um, uh, uh, religious war like crazy, like uh, you know, massive bloodshed for about two centuries. Um, so it's going to be disruptive, and we just introduced a billion or more additional people into direct communication with each other through social media, um, and it really started. You really started seeing it hit around 2011 in like the Arab Spring. um, And then it really started hitting campuses around 2014 really hard. Mm -hmm. So basically, my point is that when you have that many new eyes on any problem, it can tear down any idea, any person, or any um, institution. Um, So the person, of course, tearing down any person is cancel culture. Tearing down any idea is uh, misinformation, disinformation, false facts kind of thing. So I, I think that And I think that there's a lot of effort to have big state solutions to sort of putting the genie back in the bottle. And my answer to that is, like, that's exactly what Henry VIII tried, man. Like, like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle here. Like, basically, you have to learn to live with the existence of this new technology. And it's going to be difficult, but it requires profound cultural shifts in order to take the best advantage of it. Um, but there's no way this is not an anarchical period. Yeah. and it's
1: <laughs> That was an awesome segue to Texas and Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to get to Texas and Arkansas later in the podcast. But it made me think about the recent FAQ we put out about artificial intelligence. Yeah. Know? And and how futile that one letter written by, I think, Elon Musk and a couple of other tech entrepreneurs was, where they called for putting a pause on AI research and development for the next six months while they figure out how to put guardrails around it. I'm like, you know, in a dynamic global capitalist society, nobody's going to just where there's money to be made, of course, yeah. just stop working yeah
0: let, it. let's just because this is, people are so naive about laws sometimes it's kind of like so you do understand that all you're saying with this is just the law abiding people will will stop researching it, and meanwhile, like everybody who's completely unscrupulous can go as fast as they want and meanwhile, the only real protection we're gonna have against AI is better AI defenses that come from AI yeah, yeah. Well, well,
2: Oh, it's on. always interesting when those who are in a market-dominant position say things like, well, let's have a pause on this until I figure out what we should do about it <laughs> and how we should go forward. <laughs> Let, let's have a pause on this until meta is really successful and everybody wants to
0: be in the metaverse. That's right.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's, let's move to some more old-school uh, media backpack patches. Oh, yeah. There was this, there's this issue that went viral, I guess, everywhere, not just Twitter, uh, this past week or two, where a student, Jaden Rodriguez, a kid who often has patches and other signage on his backpack, I, he's in elementary school, I think.
2: Uh, I think junior high, maybe. Maybe junior high. Somewhere in that. In, I couldn't that, tell, in tell in from those the bridge video. years. Yeah. yeah, in those bridge
1: years. Um, but he would go to school with this Gadsden flag on his backpack. and Remind
0: for, people which one the Gadsden flag is. I was
1: just about that because about to because I know some people forget it. But it's the don't tread on me yellow flag. I got the Gadsden flag and the Gadsden purchase confused. <laughs> <laughs> is there a Gadsden purchase? Yeah, it was a little
0: like a little part between Texas and Mexico.
1: Oh, oh, well, the more you know. Yeah. But the Gadsden flag comes from the Revolutionary War. It's the yellow flag that says don't tread on me. Don't it's tread on to. snack. Yeah, it's supposed to symbolize the 13 colonies kind of all banding together and their their tail rattles, you know, they all rattle together, I guess, like a rattlesnake. And um, the school, however, there was a teacher, I guess, who complained about this particular patch uh, and complained multiple times. And I guess a student, Jaden, was pulled out of class multiple times for this patch. And ultimately, the school said, you can't wear it because the school district argued in this case. It had origins with slavery and the slave trade, which is historically inaccurate. I think there are some groups that um, you know, are, are maybe far-right or right-wing that have appropriated the Don't Tread on Me flag, much like groups appropriate all sorts of kind of- the symbols. Yeah, the cross, for example. Um, and maybe they're associating it with that, but its origins were very much with yeah. the Revolutionary War and didn't have anything really to do with slavery and the slave trade. Um, So, they banned the student from wearing it on his backpack. Echoes, right, of the Tinker Case from the 1960s,
2: Ronnie? Well, yeah, and actually, it's funny, there are two patches involved here. Yes, there are. Right. So, first of all, he'd been wearing patches on his backpack for years without incident. Years. And he shows up this year with his backpack, and he's got these two patches. One of them is the Gadsden flag uh, patch, but the first one was not, don't tread on me. It was, don't tell on me. It was <laughs> it was it was it was basically like you know the junior high school or elementary school adapted version of the Gadsden flag. So that's a terrible. Yeah, one. and the other one was uh, I think fi- FPC Firearms. It was, pro- was firearms policy, pro- policy coalition, coalition. coalition official member. Right. So it's a so it's a it's a patch with a gun and the name of the organization around it. You know, standard Second Amendment rights type stuff. Yeah. And so you know. A teacher complains it didn't cause any disruption in the classroom. No one, you know, the teacher looks at it. it's unhappy with it, and so there's a school policy that is basically nothing with you can't wear anything with guns or sex or drugs or you know just kind of this bright alcohol weapons, alcohol weapons, and then there's this other you know issue of oh the the Gadsden flag is you know somehow racist or something, and you know counter counterfactual historically, and they tell him you know you can't you can't wear this. And this is, I mean, it's funny. We're going to talk about a number of things where my reaction to a lot of it is my time machine worked. Um, <laughs> because here we are, you know, 50 odd years later from Tinker, and we're arguing about what a student can, you know, wear quietly to school to make a political point and what rights they have. And I thought we had settled this, right? And by the way, Mary Beth Tinker, I think, was the youngest of the three. I think she was 14. So she's not that much older than Jaden is here. And, you know, I thought the court was very clear in saying that, you know, unless there's substantial disruption or a reasonable forecast of substantial disruption, students can make political statements through what they wear silently throughout the school day. And, um, you know, we wrote a letter. Yes. Um, okay. explaining that, you know, no, the First Amendment, uh, you know, p- protects his right to do this. There's no basis for uh, a, a prediction of substantial disruption. There was no disruption. And the thing is, they relented, ultimately, on the Gadsden flag patch. That, okay, he can wear it, so long as nobody complains. Yeah, right. Would that count as
1: substantial disruption, though, under the Tinker stand-up? Well, no.
2: Actually, there's been case law, even recent case law, where a handful of emails, calls from parents, administrators having to spend a little bit of time on something, that doesn't count as substantial disruption. Yeah, the Tenth Circuit case. Yes. And more to the point, um, it's a heckler's veto. By saying you can do something until somebody complains about your speech, well, that's the definition <laughs> yeah. of a heckler's veto. As long as these bottle throwers
0: aren't mad at you. That's right.
2: And so, so, so that patch, as far as we know, is back on the backpack. Jaden's back in school. But the, the FPC patch is simply outright prohibited under the policy. And it's hard to understand how the policy is constitutional. I mean, it's easy to understand how it's unconstitutional. Yeah. Um, because you couldn't even wear a, you know, a dare patch or a patch arguing for gun safety. Yeah. Um, if you, if, if there's a gun, it doesn't matter what the message is, it's, it's out and it's so grossly overbroad and it affords just a gr- unfettered, what they call unfettered discretion on the school. And, and this is a perfect example, right, is that you have a teacher deciding without consulting with anybody else saying, oh, those patches are no good. I mean, ultimately, the administration gets involved and backs the teacher. But all it takes is one teacher saying, this hits me the wrong way. You know, you got to get out or you got to stop bringing these things to school. And, and that's not the way this is supposed to work. We might have to remind the youngins what D.A.R.E. stood for. Oh, uh... Or is it just D.A.R.E. to keep kids off drugs? Yeah, D.A.R.E. dare to keep kids off drugs. It was an acronym. Yeah, it is an acronym. And you can see how effective it was, because that was from my day. Drugs are really... Evil? I don't know. Oh, Maybe. I'm guessing. I doubt doubt that's right. That's how effective the program was. But you couldn't wear an anti-drug patch. You couldn't wear an anti-gun patch. You... I mean, there... And there's no reason to think that any of this would cause any disruption or is likely to cause a disruption, I, you know, the, the school board and the district are kind of just going beyond what the Constitution allows. Well,
1: it looks like there's a federal appellate court that also says that a t-shirt with a logo of a gun rights group uh, inc- that included an image of a handgun yeah. uh, was materially indistinguishable from the black armbands worn in Tinker to protest the Vietnam War and uh, upheld the student's right to, to wear that. Can can we
2: complain about bonkets for Jesus? (laughs) Go right ahead. Well, and so that's the interesting part of it is so you see in the policy that they're trying to do their best to include the categories that the court has said, right? So we know from Bethel if it's kind of indecent or lewd or sexually tinged, whatever, that's categorically something they can you probably get at, you know, and we know from Bong Hits for Jesus that drug-related stuff, they can kind of—and I mean, and it's silly, but, but such these are— a, Such a
0: mess of a case. Right.
2: I mean, it's silly, but these are the rules. But the rest of these categories have never been adjudicated yeah. to be something that a school can—and some of them go to the core political speech, such as firearms, right? I mean, and so the, the policy is is unconstitutional, Uh I'm just waiting for the first person to complain. Because all, all anyone has to do is read the paper and if you, you know, don't want Jaden to be able to bring his pat you know, his don't tread on me patch to school, all you have to do is call up and complain. Now we said you could wear it until someone complains. Now on the upside, um, Superman has come to his aid. I read in an article today. Which one? Dean Kane.
0: Oh, that
1: that, that one. That
2: one. (laughs) Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado,
1: also came to his defense saying the Gadsden flag is a proud symbol of the American Revolution and an iconic warning to Britain or any government not to violate the liberties of Americans. So it was nice to see that. Um, As you mentioned, the school district did kind of back down on the Gadsden flag, albeit saying that until someone complains, he can wear it. Um, But they have not yet backed down on the gun the FPC patch, patch yeah the fpc patch so we have a letter out to the school and hopefully they respond to that i want to move now to california where there is another issue that captured attention this is at yolo county in yolo it's county really yolo really we had to double check that yeah, yeah. really yolo county one. but there was a group uh, moms for liberty chapter that was hosting some sort of conference at the library in yolo county and it was focusing on women's sports and um uh, transgender women participating in women's sports and the organizers were opposed to transgender women participating in women's sports, referred to transgender women as biological men or men. Library manager warned them not to do this because they said that... It was it, illegal. Yeah, it was illegal that... Um, yeah.
2: under Calif- Their argument was, under California anti-discrimination law, you can't say those words. Yes, so the, you had
1: the libraries manager sitting in the back just kind of waiting for them to say biological men or men in referring to transgender women, uh, gave them a warning the first time they did it. Uh, I think one speaker was asked to leave, um, but they kept doing it, obviously, because it comports with their ide- ideological beliefs about this uh, controversial issue of public concern. And the meeting ended up getting
2: shut down mish mish so minutes in yeah. minutes yeah. in yeah. i mean it was just it was supposed to be like an hour hour and a half hour 15 minutes somewhere in that range and i mean within five minutes i mean they they pulled the plug
1: yeah so the, the the and this was all captured on video Uh, And the the library manager said, if you're speaking about a transgender female, they need to be referred to as female, transgender male needs to be referred to as male. And if there's any misgendering, if it's by any of the organizers, they will be asked to leave. There are no exceptions. And then one of the speakers, Sophia Lori, referred to the physiological advantage of male athletes. These comments led one audience member to ask, are you going to continue misgendering people throughout the event? Uh, one person recommended referring to them as biological men, and and then the library manager uh, shut down the event. Yeah, and this is why when people say cancel
0: culture is over, it's kind of like w- when we've reached the point that you can't refer to biological men as biological men, and where someone's actually gone so far as to believe that it's actually illegal to use that term... Um, in the entire state of California, like that means we've been sufficiently chilled in our speech that we actually believe there are massive exceptions to freedom of speech that we all just have to respect now. Um, so yeah, this was a, a, about as bad of a case as I've, a, a,
2: a, I've seen. Yeah, it, it makes... Go ahead. And Arnie. bear in mind, they're not referring in the course of these conversations that are on the video to a particular... Yeah. Biological male or biological female or transgender male trans. They are talking conceptually, right? And even then, you can't you can't use the label of your choice based on your perspective or your viewpoint. I mean, there's there's no there's no complainant per se except other than the group of biological females who you know want to participate in men's sports or vice versa. I mean, I don't no operation of a law like California's law or harassment laws generally operate in that way, right? They don't, they don't say, oh, you know, just generally to refer to a group as you're talking about them conceptually can run afoul. It's got to be directed towards specific individuals or a group, I mean like actual individuals or specific members of a, who make up a group. I don't, I don't know what this librarian was thinking. And, and I have to say it's, it's a little unfortunate that this happened – at a library uh-huh. because we've got so many issues going on with libraries right now yeah. with books and whatnot. I mean, this could have just as easily been a classroom at local high school, after school where they let groups come in and use it. It could have been a community center. The fact that it's a library, I think, also helps confuse the issues a little bit. The fact that Moms for Liberty, who's also involved in some of the other library stuff, is, happens to be involved in this kind of muddies the water, but it's very straightforward. The library opened a forum, groups are allowed to come in and use it, it doesn't matter whether you want to call it a designated forum or a limited forum, it's some kind of forum and in no forum can government actors discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. It's that simple. Greg, this makes me think a little bit of your
1: Perfect Rhetorical Fortress, which you referenced at the top of the podcast. So you think about this issue, right, Um, transgender women in sports. It's so controversial that even the language you use in talking about it signals how you think about it, yeah. right, as the library manager referred to here, as referring to them as anything but women, transgender women. It sounds if, like you couldn't even refer to them as, as, as trans women. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then quote I took. You had to. Yeah, well, yeah, you had to, right? And then on the other side, you have people saying. Oh, but it sounds like you just have to refer to them as women, not yeah, even women. Yeah, from the quote. It's, he said, um, if you're speaking about a transgender female, they need to be referred to as female. So you have this hot oh, button yeah, issue yeah. that if you're on the other side of it from this library manager, you need to adopt the library manager's terms of the debate, yeah. the kind of perspective in which the library manager sees the world. Yeah. Otherwise, in this case, you have your, your event shut down. And, and you, you, can, you can see this from the right, too, by saying, you know, they say you need to refer to them as men or biological men. Otherwise, you're, you're you know, engaged. You, you, you've adopted the gender ideology um, of the left, so there's like you can't win on either sides, and they and they can push you out of the debate just by by policing how you how you frame it.
0: Yeah. Right? So just to go, go over it real quick, in the book, in the middle part of the book, we talk about um, you know cheap dodges to, to to debate, and first we talk about you know what we call the um, obstacle course, which are like standard minimization, you know, um, uh, logical fallacies that can di- disrupt a, a, a speech that, that can disrupt an argument um, that are, exists largely to run out the clock in, in a world of limited time. Most of, like, um, debates on Twitter, for example, which go nowhere, are primarily just to, until the other person leaves in frustration. Then the next stage that we call the minefield are the sort of ad hominem attacks that both sides use. And that's like calling someone a grifter, calling uh, accusations of bad faith, minimization, all this yeah. kind of stuff that everybody uses.
1: So we have this fortress in the center and these are the walls or yeah. the, the
0: minefields, so to speak, yeah, that well, it go around it. Yeah. And we talk about the efficient rhetorical fortress on the right, which is, um, you know, you don't have to listen to liberals, experts, uh, journalists, or, um, and if you're really hard right, anybody who disagrees with Trump. So we, we, we call it efficient because there's only four le- levels. But meanwhile, since so much of the norms around speech policing have come, on, have come from campus, I call the one on the left the, the, the perfect rhetorical fortress because it's just layer after layer of ways to get out of arguments. And a big part of it is, um, well, one, of course, you can dismiss anybody that you can deem conservative. That doesn't mean they are conservative, by the way. That just means you just have to allege it. And, and no, it doesn't fire know it? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that derails the discussion, and, um, and I call that out as the first step. But then we go through the demographic funnel, which is everything from you know your your race to your um, uh, to your gender identity. Um, and we worked out that that gets you down to about 0.4 percent of the population of the United
1: States, but yeah. that, that you can't that you can't dismiss just out of hand.
0: Yeah, uh, that you could figure out a way to run down the clock by bringing, bringing this up or otherwise yeah. dismiss. But there's a wonderful like, there's a wonderful kind of uh, turn at the end, which is like, oh, but by the way, if you have the wrong argument, you still don't count. You could be in that 0.4 percent, but you will you will actually be even hated even more if you have the wrong argument, which points out that this is primarily to protect dogma. I mean, Coleman Hughes has this incredible quote that we quote in the book. Um, He's a a black uh, contrarian, you know, uh, who um, absolutely brilliant 20-something. And he talked about how I keep on being told that being black is um, uh, key to my being taken seriously on issues, uh, uh, any number of policy issues. But then when I have an opinion that doesn't actually, you know, match what they think it should be, I'm suddenly told I'm not black. And I asked every black conservative that I knew and a lot of black moderates, including people like John McWhorter, like, have they been accused of not really being black for their opinions? Every single one of them was like, oh yeah. And I'm like, okay, so this is about protecting dogma. It's not actually about
1: what you've convinced yourself about that it's about just protection, protecting the marginalized. I think that's one of the kind of concepts that you have in your book that I hope at least will catch on, because I think it's a perfect way of encapsulating how debate and argumentation has evolved in our society. Yeah. Just these, these or, barriers- Devolved. Devolved, yes. <laughs> Had these, just these barriers to actually getting to the argument yeah. itself and the substance. We can actually solve stuff if we argue about
0: things, you know, when we get to the argument.
1: Without um, dismissing you, them for their identity get, or yeah. their political affiliation or using ad hominem or, you know, logical- We can fa- fix stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, this is a case we also wrote a letter on. And I'm, you know, I think both of them will result in lawsuits. We'll see. I don't think we've ha- seen any lawsuits yet on either case. Not yet. Um, but I want to turn now to where a case where I, I think we did just see a lawsuit recently. Uh, this is the Marion County newspaper case. Oh, yeah. So this is a case involving the Marion County record. Fashion case. Yeah. <laughs> the Marion County record in Kansas. It's a small local newspaper. The city had its entire five officer police force and two Sherry deputies go
2: into the paper's offices and seize everything. Yeah. Uh, But also the house of the 90-year-old woman who was the part owner of the paper as well, they went in and seized everything. They went in and
1: seized everything. And according to her son, who I think also worked for the paper, she died the next day, he thought in part due to the stress caused by this. A little bit of background here, right? So the raid... Reading from the Kansas Reflector here. The raid followed news stories about a restaurant owner who kicked reporters out of a meeting with U.S. Representative Jake LaTurner and revelations about the restaurant owner's lack of a driver's license and conviction for drunken driving. I I believe the restaurant owner is starting a business or a catering enterprise and was trying to get a a liquor license or something else for that. And so there was this concern about this, this record and driving without a license that the newspaper was tipped off to. And so um, the newspaper tried to corroborate some of these facts, I guess used a public, allegedly a public database to look into it, then was concerned that some of the information was gathered illegally or something. So they went to the police and told them about this. Uh, And by the way, they didn't publish. And they didn't publish any story related to this. Fast forward. Their offices get raided. Ronnie, why is this wrong?
2: <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you mean? These are brilliant police tactics. <laughs> this, um, why is it wrong? Because um, the government doesn't get to go in and seize the tools of publication just because they think that you have published or were thinking about publishing something that they don't like. I mean we have a whole – in addition to the First Amendment, we have a whole federal statute yeah. that prevents this. We, you know, we had the federal statute, the Privacy Protection Act that grew out of the raid on the Stanford Daily where unless the actual crime is being committed by the journalist or the publication and the evidence is you know, it, it, on the premises – you have to use a subpoena to get materials out of you know the press, the offices of the press, the property of the press, and you know there was there was a a a, a warrant sworn out on probable cause to authorize this. Let's call it what it is It's a raid, right? Yeah. Um, to authorize this raid. Um, later, it was you know labeled improvidently issued. You think that's an understatement? Yeah, and the the newspaper is, and 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 you know, this is a small newspaper in Kansas, but the entire uh, press nationally got up in arms over this, sure. as well. They should. Uh, there is a lawsuit uh, that has been filed. I think by one it's, of the reporters. By, by one of the reporters, and I think also I need to double check this, but I think the editor um, of the paper as well i mean someone can sue on behalf of the paper
1: i'm sure if it hasn't been filed yeah. it will be yeah yes.
2: i mean and I, I mean i don't know if you've you seen the video from the mo- the mother's house mm-hmm. there's video of the cops in the mother's house they're taking apart her computer and i will give the police a, at least enough credit of that you know they were very kind and they were explaining what they were doing and that they had a warrant and you know they had to come over here and whatever but she's yelling at them, you know, you have no right to do this, and that's my property, and she's absolutely right. And she dies the next oh, day. Yeah, yeah. It's I just mean, such just, an awful Yeah, case. it's just, it's just, it's just a, such, such a terrible... Late 90s, I forget Yeah, she's 98. 98, yeah. yeah
0: and, they, and, and I think they did the raid, what, like on a Friday afternoon or something like that? They tried to do it in a way that would get minimal coverage, and it's like, well, good luck with that. Yeah. This, is, this is insane.
1: So, so the allegation here is that when the Marion record was looking into this restaurant owner's driving history. They were suspected of of relying on information, personal information that they shouldn't have had that was- I'm only a, laughing
0: because the justification was so thin.
1: Yeah, I mean it was, a, well, a, a, there was suspicion that the source for the information was the restaurant owner's husband or ex-husband who had filed for a divorce And, you know, all of this kind of messiness surrounding it led the paper to not publish the story and to report it to the police. And it's
2: important that you note that it wasn't a matter of the newspaper going out and, you know, accessing unlawfully information, which, by the way, wouldn't change the right for the police to raid. But it makes it even more clear cut because we know from Pentagon Papers and from Bartnicki versus Vopper that the fact that the press receives information that might have been unlawfully gained by somebody else who gave it to the press, it doesn't in any way, shape, or form diminish the right of free speech and the right of free press of the newspaper or whatever type of publication it happens to be. I mean, this is, this is black letter law. Yeah. It's the Pentagon Papers.
1: The, what is it? The Kansas Press Association has kind of a fundraiser open for... The paper with T-shirts and coffee mugs and hoodies uh, emblazoned. So the paper actually ran, I think, on its normal schedule. They were managed to do it without any of their assets. And Fire actually placed an ad, yeah, uh, or a couple of ads, two Two ads, yeah. But uh, the headline on that first issue after the raid was "Seized but not silenced." And so you can go to the Kansas Press Association's website. It's a fundraiser for the paper, and get T-shirts that say "Seized but not silenced." I bought one yesterday and. Two coffee mugs. We're going to put them up here in the office. Um, So if you're looking to support them, that's that's one way to do it. There is also kind of an allegation or a suspicion, I should say, that the police might have been inclined to raid this newspaper because the police chief, uh, new police chief, I believe, Gideon Cody, uh, was being investigated by the newspaper, and uh, maybe. The police chief got wind of that was concerned about it. That's some; Those are some suspicions that are going around. Uh, yeah, I don't know anything about it. But <laughs> Meet the Streisand effect. Yes, yes. So we've seen one lawsuit there from a reporter. I did read, Ronnie, though. You know, they might have been polite on that video, but there was one reporter who alleged that the police snatched... Their phone from their hand or something like that
2: out of their hand in the in the press office. Oh, in the press. I thing. don't think that happened. There were, a couple, there were a couple of raids. Yeah, right. Right. So there's the the raid at the at the at the newspapers offices. Yeah, and they and there they were not. quite... I mean, at least from what I could see on the video, it didn't seem like they were. I mean, it didn't seem like they were like going in, you know, guns drawn and you know, jack boots and whatever else. But it didn't seem like they were exercising the same care that they tried to exercise at the mother's house. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was. It, bottom line, they should not have been there in either place.
1: So next I want to turn to a slew of court decisions that came down late last week. Um, Texas to, three feet? Yeah, there was, <laughs> I think it was Texas, Texas, Texas was, slapped, three <laughs> Texas was thra- slapped down thrice, I think is what we used uh, uh, on Twitter. And Tyler, our, helps with our social media stuff, is behind the camera and uh, might have had something to do with that copy. Uh, but there's three kind of, sensorial laws in Texas that were slapped down and then one in Arkansas. So I want to move through them with you guys and get your perspective on them because they all deal with issues that are kind of recent trends in the First Amendment world. Although issues, albeit that have been addressed by courts in the past, but they just keep cropping up. Right. You know,
2: every now and then the, you know, attorneys for the uh, state, whether it's Texas or elsewhere, will just kind of have a bad week. Uh, like, for example, the last week of the Supreme Court term, Colorado, poor AG, had a particularly bad week with countermen being decided against the state and with 303 Creative being decided against the state. Last week, it was Texas's turn where they had, like you say, three decisions decided against them. Um, and I
1: think the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, is up for impeachment this week. Oh, I think oh, his sure trial, is, yeah. is a, a
2: trial in the Senate starts today. Right. As a matter of fact, if you look at the, one of the cases is the Free Speech Coalition's challenge to the... Um, Age requirements for online adult content. Let's well, start
1: there. What, what is that, Ronnie?
2: So you know, basically, and this again is one of, another one of these cases where I'm fe- I feel like oh, my time machine worked yeah. because we're right back where we were in 1997. I mean, in you know when when the Telecom Act of 96 was passed, they adopted the you know uh, the uh, well first it was the. The Communications Decency Act, the provision that didn't survive, the, the provision that we all know and love now, Section Two Hundred and Thirty, uh-huh. that protects you know third-party content on online pr- platforms. Well, let's
0: educate the youngs a little bit about that. that. That's one of the reasons why I went to law school, and it literally was a ban on
2: indecency on the internet, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which was isn't adorable. that the definition of the internet? <laughs> <laughs> well, as with every technology, the leading edge tends to be adult content. I mean, that's that's why you wasn't know, that
1: the case with credit cards too? That it was it was you know credit cards. There Betamax, was a movie made about it.
2: Betamax. Yeah. Uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, the... Uh, you know Virtual reality. Yeah, virtual reality. I mean, it's, it's... You know, that's where the money's going to be. that's not the case with
0: robots too. porn <laughs>
2: I don't know how to tell you this, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, so the 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 federal law basically said, like you said, indeed, you know, it basically tried to outlaw indecency on the internet, and the way it did it was, you know, it said if you had content that would have, would be in, in, inappropriate for minors to access, you had to like check an ID and so on and so forth, and the Supreme Court came out and said, you know, no, you you know, this is fully protected speech. If you're going to, you know. In any way, really impede access by adults. Uh, it's going to be unconstitutional. It has to satisfy strict scrutiny, and that means the L.U.V. Reno. Yeah, and that means you have to have. The use the least restrictive means, and the court was very clear, you know, you haven't, and this is early in the internet, right? You, yeah. you haven't tried filtering. You haven't tried yep. doing stuff at the, at, the, at the ISP level. You haven't tried a bunch, of, a bunch of other alternatives. This can't be the least restrictive. And I'm grossly oversimplifying ACOV, Reno, yeah. and the follow-on cage, FSC versus Ashcroft, because Congress tried again. Yep. This is essentially the same statute. Well, but there's something that I think makes it
0: decidedly worse, though. This is the one that had the, the, the warning labels that there is I some that, in where, that part, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that's compelled speech, which is the heart of darkness when it comes to that which is wor- it's worse
1: to tell people what they must say than what they can not yeah. say. So this is kind of a two parter. Let's oh, talk yeah. about age verification yeah, first, because exactly. I think this is something that on its face, a lot of listeners will think, oh, age verification to access pornographic sites on the internet makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But there are some. There are some serious First Amendment and privacy concerns sure. that if you are going to implement age verification on this, it will also apply to adults, right? Because of they the need to of provide their information to prove that they are above age, um, which is different than showing your driver's license or some other sort of identification at you know, a video retailer or at a newsstand, right, where you're just kind of flashing it. No data is actually transmitted or submitted electronically. Online, it's a little bit it's a little bit different,
2: right? Well, yeah, and you know, bear in mind also that those ID checks, whether it's walking into a strip club or buying certain magazines or renting certain videos, um, those are not government-imposed requirements. I mean, they are. I think, think a lot of
1: people will be surprised by that. They're yeah, voluntary.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, what you basically have is you have laws that say it's unlawful to provide to minors material that would be obscene as to minors and material that's obscene as to minors means by definition that it's not obscene full stop obscene full stop you can regulate for everybody adults and minors obscene as to minors is content that is protected as to adults but it's not appropriate for minors because it satisfies a modified version of the test for obscenity that is directed towards minors and so in order to avoid um inadvertently selling a material that might ultimately be deemed obscene to minors to a minor, mm-hmm. a retailer, a you know, purveyor will check an ID. Mm-hmm. You know, a strip club, if they're serving alcohol, mm-hmm. is going to check an ID because you got to be 21 to go into a place where there's alcohol. I mean, that's a, that's a, separ- that's a separate you know, category. But like you say, online, in order to do this, you're basically asking everybody who wants to access this content, and it's a very, very broad definition of sexual content. And it's a fairly broad definition of which websites and services... I think they need to have at least a third of their content be, right. you be know, indecent or you know, obscene, obscene yeah. as to minors. Or you know, sexually explicit sexually or you know, whatever explicit, it is. Yes. And when you think about it, that's not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you basically are creating a record um, under a government law announcing that I'm going to go watch porn online and that's not comfortable for some people. And as a result, they're not going to go watch porn online. So you're creating a very significant barrier to access to protected content online by having these age verification laws. And by the way, um, they're not terribly effective because if anyone knows how to use technological tools to get around, for example. I mean, what happens is, and this is an example in Virginia, and I checked because Virginia has a law also. And, um, you know, I'm a member of the First Amendment Lawyers Association. The lawyers who are bringing these cases against these laws around the country in Utah and Texas and other places um, are members as well. And they passed the a law in Virginia. If you go to an uh, adult website in Virginia and you want to see the content, there's an, there's an age gate, you know, please you know, demonstrate that you're over the age of 18 and you have to upload an ID and, 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 and every, you know, whatever else. I could ask my kids, um, and my kids are you know, late teenagers. And it's not like I'm asking little, little tiny kids to help me you know, access the porn. <laughs> but I, could ask, you know, I could ask my kids and they'd be able to tell me, not that I didn't know myself, how to use a VPN to mask your geographic location. So now the website doesn't know I'm in Virginia anymore. I'm in. Um, You know, it's it's that simple. And so also the law can only cover entities that the state has jurisdiction over. So all these foreign websites that may be available in the state that the state can't get to because they're outside the United States, they're not going to be, you know, age verifying their users. So the law isn't having its intended consequence, but it is having the consequence of – making people who don't know how to use a VPN and who do want to access it but don't want to create a government record. Now, the laws do, you know, come up with this framework of a third-party intermediary where you show your ID to the third-party intermediary. The intermediary, you know, informs the website that you're allowed to go forward and ostensibly that. But even so –
1: And then it's supposed to delete it. It's supposed to
2: delete it. But as the court says very clearly – you know there are data breaches there are even even innocent mistakes of things not being deleted and it is a significant burden on the right of adults to access protected information and then the court very carefully goes through you know well is this the least restrictive means you know it's still strict scrutiny it's still a content based regulation and Lo and behold, just like in 1997, um, and and again in the early 2000s, when the Ashcroft case was up in the Supreme Court and bouncing back and forth to the Third Circuit, the court said, "No, you know, there's there's filtering. There, you could you could, for example, have ISPs. And I'm not necessarily advocating this as a constitutional solution in of itself, but it is a less restrictive means. You could, at the ISP level, tell subscribers that." If you want to be able to access this material, you'd have to affirmatively turn on the access to it. Mm -hmm. But no one would have a record of that. You would simply make that choice yourself. That is putting the power in the hands of the parent of individual children to make decisions at the device level or at the access point level – whether or not they want to allow access, not having the government come in over the top and create rules for everyone, including adults who have full rights to access this stuff. There, one of the things that was interesting about this law is that
1: while these third-party services that these websites could uh, hire to check this data had to delete the data, the government didn't have to delete the data. And, um, one of the two possible mechanisms of a verification is through the government, sure. through your government-issued ID. And, it, and the court talks about how Louisiana passed a similar law to this um, HB 1181 sh- just shortly before a vendor for its Office of mor- Motor Vehicles was breached by a cyber attack. So you, these vendors are, can be hacked as well, right? So uh, an and injury occurs according to the court, because the individuals know that information is at risk and that hacks happen. Even at the highest levels of our government, hacks happen. And you know the, there are states still, even after um, Texas sought to criminalize men having sex in the privacy of beds. That law, I guess, is still on the books in Texas. Um, the court says here, given Texas ongoing criminalization of homosexual intercourse, it is apparent that people who wish to view homosexual material online will be profoundly chilled from doing so if they must f- first affirmatively identify themselves to the state. So there's a chilling effect, kind of the big, big brother's eye. How, might is be- that,
0: how is that still around,
2: though, well, Lawrence v. Texas? Well, because what, ha- what happens oftentimes is a law will get declared un- unconstitutional and it's invalidated. And you know, the technical part, the way it works is there's an injunction against enforcement by the attorney gen- state attorney general, whoever has the enforcement power, and you know, in order to comply with the injunction, they simply can't enforce it. Very rarely, I think, relatively speaking, does the state actually go back and scrub the offending statute uh-huh. from the code? Sometimes they do. I mean, in fact, they tend to do it if there's some other separate reason that they're going back and revisiting that chapter or that part of the code, but if they don't. There's still, I mean, there's because that would have to happen legislatively. That's right. right. That's right. It means that they have to pass a whole. You have to go through a whole legislative process, pass a bill, amending the law to repeal it or to amend it to something constitutional, and you know, unless there's a reason to be there most state legislatures don't bother. I mean, I mean, even the, even the provisions of the CDA yep. that got struck down and left Section 230 to protect the, the, uh, the third-party online speech, those provisions are still in Title 47. They're just sitting there right next to 230. Yep. You just can't be enforced. Yep. So what this boils down to is that there
1: are less restrictive means available. Content filtering, allowing people to uh, manage this content at the ISP level and opt in if they would like. And also that there are these larger privacy concerns by having to submit your personally identifying information to either a third party or using government uh, tools to to do so. And none of this, as you mentioned, Ronnie, is new. This these cases made their way in the '90s. There is an argument that the technology has gotten better since then. But as the court clearly lays out here, it doesn't. It doesn't fix the strict scrutiny problem and it doesn't necessarily fix the the new technology doesn't necessarily fix the privacy yeah. problem either.
2: And the state has the burden on all of these elements of the test including the burden of showing that the potential less restrictive means are in fact not effective and there's none of that here. There's no findings Uh, there's no, you know, legislative history or hearings demonstrating. I mean, they have, it's funny because I don't want to jump ahead to the Arkansas case because I want to talk about the disclosures in Texas. Mm -hmm. But they have an expert that's, you know, supporting these statutes and it's the same expert in Arkansas and as in Texas. And you see both courts basically rejecting, uh, the, the experts' uh, views on the efficacy of these alternative means, among other things. But do you have the language of the disclosures I by do. any chance in front of you? you? You can read them. They're yeah. Amazing. So there
1: are. So, and as part of this law in Texas, this age verification law, there's also mandatory disclosures, and we're we're litigating a sort of issue like this, which is actually cited by the court in this case in New York uh, regarding their hate speech law in uh, Volek v. James, I think is the title of that case. But they have mandatory disclosures here. It says. Texas Health and Human Services warning, warning, pornography is potentially biologically addictive, is proven to harm human brain development, desensitizes brain reward circuits, increases conditioned responses, and weakens brain function. There are two more that kind of track
2: that. No, no, you have to read them. All right, we'll they, keep going. They're, they're sufficiently ridiculous that they should be read into the record. Yeah.
1: Texas Health and Human Services, this is the second one, uh, Human Services warning, exposure to this content is associated with low self-esteem and body images, eating disorders, impaired brain development, and other emotional and mental illnesses. Texas Health and Human Services warning, pornography increases the demand for prostitution, child exploitation, and child pornography. So porn sites would be compelled to put these on their websites, much like, I guess, cigarette manufacturers are forced to put a health warning on packages of cigarettes. The funny thing is, though, that the Texas Health and Human Services has never actually Itself issued these warnings or, or, made, come to these, these findings. or made these findings. Yeah, or I, I mean, made these I'm, sh- findings. I'm
2: shocked that they stopped short of blindness and hairy palms. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's,
1: it's and they and and I guess the expert in this case even admitted that the, these claims are controversial. Yeah. And, and non-settled.
2: Right, yeah, and so and so the law in the area in this area is, to say weak evidence would be an understatement. Yeah, the law in this area is you know it's compelled speech right which is anathema i yeah. mean it's just it's to make somebody say something even a company it, it's just not what you know the first amendment anticipates the government doing and there's a very narrow exception to that rule i mean for example you can't compel someone to recite the to recite the pledge of allegiance in you know elementary school in public school right we have yep. you know Barnett. we you know you can't compel someone to put live for your dire on their license plate if that's not something they believe in you can't force people to include in their parades Groups that they don't necessarily have an affiliation or, gr- or, gr- or in philosophical agreement with. We don't compel speech. The narrow exception is com- commercial disclosures. Yeah. So, is this
1: like the California, according to the knowledge of the state of California, this product? you know, causes well, cancer that's, or the, yeah, that's the, the cigarette that's, warning labels. That's,
2: yeah, that's Prop 65. And that has uh, its own problems. We could do a whole separate podcast on Prop 65 <laughs> cases. But more broadly, you know, the the seminal case is, is Zodderer in the Supreme Court. And basically, the test is the government may impose disclosure requirements where commercial speech... Uh, is or might be misleading. Mm-hmm. And the requirements are that the disclosure has to be purely factual, non-controversial, and it has to be no more burdensome than necessary in order to solve the potential misleading problem. And originally, this r- rule applied only in the commercial speech context. Over the last 10 years or so, we've had an issue with Z- what I call or creep, where the government, having found that they were getting slapped down in court more frequently when they tried to prohibit speech about a product or service or about anything for that matter that they want, thought the you know public should know the truth about, they would start imposing disclosure obligations instead. So, for example, um, you know the you know there's a federal agency that wanted to compel disclosures about uh, companies' use of um, certain, you know, minerals that were conflict, conflict minerals in their products. And again, that's kind of a very controversial issue. What does it mean to be a conflict issue, yeah. a conflict mineral, right? It comes from a country that doesn't have the best practices, whatever it is. Uh, and, and the court ultimately uh, struck that down. Um, and, and one of the classic examples is, you know, the packaging and advertising for, for, for um, tobacco products. And, you know, even there, where that's commercial speech, when the government tried to require graphic warnings, disgusting disgusting pictures pictures, like brown lungs. Which you see in Europe. Yeah, Yeah. which you see in many other countries, including Canada. um, The court stepped in and said, look, this isn't purely factual, non-controversial. And by the way, the tobacco companies didn't challenge the new warnings about cancer and low birth weight and everything else. What they objected to were the pictures. But – I mean the, the, for, there's you – know, the insurance companies tend to have relationships with like wind, windshield repair. Like one of the things that's covered in many in, in car insurance policies without paying the deductible is when you get a crack in your windshield because they don't want to spread and have to pay for a whole windshield. But they're often affiliated with specific companies that do the work and so the insurance companies will refer to the affiliated company and some states have these requirements saying you must tell the customer that – there are other alternatives out there, and you must identify some of them and some of these Some of these regulations have started to you know stand, and the d c circuit, among others, has backed away from the requirement that this applies only in com- purely commercial speech that is speech that proposes a commercial transaction. The court in Texas strikes down these um, disclosure requirements for the adult content websites for a variety of reasons not least of which is, it's not commercial speech. Texas tries to argue that um, you know these websites, they're out there and they're accessible because they want people to buy subscriptions or they want them to buy the content, and so there's content that's available for free, ergo it's advertising. The court bats that away and says, no, that's not proposing a commercial transaction, you're talking about the actual speech. Um, and then when they get to the purely factual and non-controversial part, I mean, these are laughably not even close to being purely factual, non-controversial. And as you said, I mean, there's actually no findings. From the the Texas uh, Human Services. The disclosures themselves are misleading by suggesting that the Texas agency has in fact made these findings and that they are in fact valid. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: We should move quickly now because I realize we're over an hour and we haven't covered all of the cases. So we'll, we'll get through them quickly just so our listeners are familiar with them of a piece with this age verification law in Texas is a law in Arkansas, Ronnie, which you reference, that requires a parental okay or permission to uh, create social media accounts. These are kind of proliferating across the country. Greg, I know you've done a lot of research into kind of the effects of social media on certain demographic groups, but as a First Amendment matter, what does the First Amendment say about limiting uh, young people's, uh, minors' access to social media?
2: Well, it's many of the same problems that the Texas law has with respect to sexually explicit content, right? You've got the same problem of age verification. How do you do age verification without having the same privacy problems that that you have, and therefore creating impediments to adults who you know are you know free to use social media you know uh, services? Um, you know, and the court in Arkansas also steps through much this very similar analysis, even though it's talking about social media as compared to adult content. Yeah. And, that's, and, and the thing is, it's, kids
0: have free First Amendment rights. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly that the government's often found to have a more compelling state interest the younger the kids get. But certainly there's no question that particularly teenagers, you know, have a yeah. pretty relatively strong First Amendment rights. Um, and you can't just kind of bat that away. And if people, and I, I am persuaded that some social media is quite harmful for some, for, for, for some young people. But that's, on, that's something you have to prove to go uh, for as, as sweeping as a state solution um, as saying that you know no kids can be on social media whatsoever without parental uh, permission. That, that basically says that actually we changed our mind. Teenagers actually have no First Amendment rights,
1: which would be a uh, distressing uh, and inappropriate change of the law. Yeah. Some of these laws, although I think they've gotten better at it, don't distinguish between young minors – and older teenagers, right? I think Arkansas, Ronnie, and correct me if I'm wrong, kids 13 or under were blocked from access to it completely, or maybe under 13. Older kids needed parental permission, you know, up until the age of 18 in order to access these sites. A lot of the case law stemming from this comes from Brown v. Entertainment Merchants Association, which involved a California law that. Banned the sale of video games or violent video games to anyone under the age of 18, not distinguishing between a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old, uh, for example. Um, this one did distinguish between a 12-year-old and, and a 17-year-old, but it still restricted access to it. And separate from that, the Supreme Court has only held that these regulations as it pertains to content of minors um, ap- apply in contexts where it is material is sexually explicit, right? That's right. That's They've right. never gotten to, like, violent video games or the potential psychological harms of social media. They might one day, but as of right now, that sort of delineation between adults and minors can only occur in the
2: sex, uh, sexual
1: content. That's in right. Way. I
2: mean, one of the points that the court made in the, in the violent video game case, EMA versus Brown, um, was that we have only ever said that uh, material that's obscene as to minors may be restricted as to minors. And by the way... One of the features of the case law that allows that restriction is that parents are still permitted to give the material to minors if they so choose. Whereas the California law made it, you know, impossible for minors to purchase this stuff. And I don't believe that there was Free any. Accounts, yeah. yeah, but you know, the, the 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 video game law was struck down for a variety of reasons, not least of which was, well, what does it mean to be violent? And you know, how does this differ from these? Lots of and 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 Justice Scalia's decision goes through all kinds of, you know, violent content that has been available through the ages. Beowulf, for example. My favorite comic books. Right. I mean, all of that stuff. And so um, you're right. You can't kind of bat away. But what's interesting is you watch how this kind of creeps along. So we start with, you know, the... um, coppa Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. This is a statute in 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 among the FTC statutes. It says you can't collect or disclose information from children under collected online from children under thirteen without verifiable parental consent okay and you know that there's a whole framework around that by the way, never constitutionally challenged mm-hmm. you know it's I mean no one wanted to be the poster child for that. We don't know whether that law is constitutional or not. There are arguments on both sides. And then you've got you know years go by, and now you have the California Privacy Act, which now imposes restrictions on the collection and use and storage of information on minors under the under the age of eighteen, and they have separate rules for the group that's older than thirteen and separate rules for the group that's younger than 13 and now we get to Arkansas uh, so, social media restrictions, and like you say, they've got one set of rules for You know, minors who are 13 and over, another set of rules for those who are under 13. And, you know, by the way, the social media companies, the the big major ones, they all disclaim, you know, know, having availability to minors under 13. If you look at their terms of service, they say point blank. And, you know, because they are not um, services directed toward children – they are not obligated to comply with COPPA unless they get actual knowledge that a specific user is under 13. Mm-hmm. But they 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 started doing that from the jump because COPPA already existed. But you can see the creep how you know you you let these you know incremental changes go unchallenged, and next thing you know, you're looking at a social media law like this in Arkansas. And how did we get here? And you bring the constitutional challenge, and it succeeds. Well you know, it's got to go up on appeal yet, so let's see what happens. And the same thing is true of the Texas case. I mean, let's see what the Fifth Circuit does with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One important point I think worth making is that parents have the means to police their kids' access to social media. and As we've heard from social media companies, parents just voluntarily decide not to use it. Uh, the record in this case shows that they're fairly easy to use. There was no dispute uh, by the defendants uh, that it wasn't easy for parents to use these con- this content and filtering uh, mechanisms that prevent their kids from accessing social media or pornography for that matter, um, any content on the internet. It's just parents, much to the chagrin of many social media companies, aren't utilizing this. And as we learned in the Playboy case, right? If these sort of voluntary measures that could be taken by parents are met with, to use the court's phrase, a collective yawn, it doesn't mean that the government gets to step in and violate the First Amendment, or at least First Amendment principles, and play parent for parents who decide that it's not worth doing it in in the first place. And I think that should be a compelling argument for libertarians, civil libertarians, anyone who believes in parental rights, that parents should have control, and they have the tools that the social media companies have created to prevent their kids from accessing this sort of content online. They just choose not to use it. And when you're talking about young kids, you're talking about them being at school, at home. If you give them a device, that's a device you give them unless they are somehow independently wealthy and can go purchase it. You know, before you give them that device, set up the parental controls on it. Um, But parents just aren't utilizing those tools. And so the government, assuming in these cases, just assumes it's their responsibility then. Uh, to be
0: and that's why I was t- talking about the need for cultural shifts to adopt to technology. And, uh, and I do think that, you know, like the, um, the stuff that I learned from writing Coddling the American Mind means I have all sorts of, you know, like my, my kids don't know how to use a tablet. Like, and I, I see kids who are, you know, um, uh, using uh, the, the screens, from uh, the, the interactive screens since they're three three and up. Yeah. And, and I do think that some of this stuff, there are going to be more parents taking advantage of this stuff. Because it's not like there are no parents who take advantage of some of these technologies. Technologies to you know um, keep their kids off of social media, for example, or porn. Um, just uh, we haven't fully adapted to the reality of this. You know, um, yeah. And, and, and the by record. The way, and one
2: one less restrictive mean that rarely gets mentioned. Teaching techno- technological literacy, we don't teach we don't teach that in school. I mean, you have now you have mandatory you know sex education in most schools. You can opt out as a parent if you want. But I mean, ask kids what they're taught about how to interact. With the online world and where to place credence and what dangers are out there, I mean you know you, you get some of the you know apocryphal things where your parents tell you you know the, the, the child molesters are out there on the internet, don't do this and that, but you know we're not really teaching them in any you know meaningful structured way. Here are some ways to interact with whether it's social media or even being an online shopper for that matter. I mean, you're going to see products where it looks too good to be true. And, you know, if you look at the URL and you click behind it, you're going to see that it's not really who they say they are. We need to teach kids as they start, like you say, if they start using screens at the age of three or the age of five or the age of eight, whatever it happens to be, uh, coming along with that should be understanding what that environment is. Just like we teach them when we allow them to start walking a few blocks to the park or whatever it is, we teach them about stop signs and crosswalks. And, you know, the same thing should be happening. And that's a less restrictive mean than the government coming in and bigfooting over well, not just, who uses social media. not just media. educating kids. Uh, the, I think well, sure. Talks <laughs> about it. But, like, educating
1: the, the government hasn't put any money toward educating parents about these voluntary content filtering tools that the social media companies or you know any technological provider computers or you know operating systems on phones provide to prevent access to this and and the court goes to great lengths to say you know this would be a least restrictive means that has never even been pursued so why don't we start there first we have two more cases but i think we're just going to talk about one there was a federal judge in texas um I'll just give the listeners an update on this i want to talk about the book rating system which is just kind of n- weird and novel and unique but first There was also a judge in Texas, uh, I think it was a federal court, yeah, it was a district judge, who struck down a drag show ban in that state, which is of a piece with a number of other uh, courts striking down drag bans in states like Tennessee, for example. We're litigating a case at West Texas A&M where a college president uh, banned a drag show on that campus for very weird reasons. You got to read the letter that the president wrote about his reason for doing those. But I I want to very quickly discuss, separate from that case, is the federal judge who barred Texas from enforcing its book ratings law. And this was a law, HB uh, 900, that would require school library vendors. So these are book publishers, right, Uh, who sell their books or companies that take books that are published by publishers and sell the books to libraries to rate all of their books and materials for appropriateness before selling them to schools based on the presence of sex depictions or references. It also requires vendors to rank materials previously sold to schools and issue a recall for those that are deemed sexually explicit and are in active use by schools. So this essentially requires book vendors who sell books to schools to go through their entire catalog, not only future but past, read all the books and determine under some of the vague standards that Texas Outlines here uh, whether a book is sexually explicit and give it a rating.
0: Yeah, and I mean, what's interesting here, and and listeners need to need need to understand this, is that at every stage, people can consider whether or not a book is is age appropriate or age inappropriate, and that goes for bookstores if they want to, uh, public libraries, K through twelve libraries. I mean, mean, they all that's part of the practice. But requiring booksellers to actually go through and you know warn people about content by very vague standards, like that, is also compelled speech for one thing. and it's, you know, it, it, it's going a, a step uh, way, way, way further than they should be allowed to.
1: Yeah. And it also empowers the Texas Education Agency the authority to review a vendor's vendor's rating. And if the TEA disagrees with the vendor's rating and gives it a different one, the vendor must use that rating. And vendors who do not will be added to a list of vendors that can no longer, um, that schools can no longer buy library materials. From, this kind of makes me think of kind of comic books and all these sort of rating enterprises that have been proposed in the past but have been never They're, gone anywhere we'll go but are voluntary, Almost all voluntary, go, Almost all yeah, voluntarily yeah. now. Right, yeah.
2: and the law is very clear. You can't turn a voluntary rating system into a government-enforceable yeah. scheme. But this goes back even further. I mean, my time machine is working so well. This goes back to the church saying which books could be printed and disseminated, right? I mean, you've got the government saying, you know... Go, Go figure out which of these books have you or know, Henry same. VIII. That comes mm-hmm. full circle, right? Right. I mean, you know, c- go tell us which books have sexual content, and we're not going to use those books, and we're going to make you recall any that have already been sold. And by the way, if we don't think you're right about it, we'll, you know, decide and we'll make you, you know, withdraw those books. I mean, it's like it's like it's like the. Uh, it's like the priest ringing the bell in Cinema Paradiso, right? Every time there was a kiss, you had to ring the bell and they would take it out so you could show the... So that's a the, great movie, by yeah, the way. Yeah, so that you could show the film in that town. I mean, the, the, none of this is new. I mean, people th- who pass these laws think they've stumbled across the, the, a great new idea. You, you know, Go back and read Jakob's book. Every single Every single evolution of, co- of communication beyond one person talking to another one has come with exactly these kinds of, it, the sky is falling, it's going to be the end of civilization, the government or the church has to step in and say how it can be used, and it, you know, over and over again from, you know, comic books to television, to records, I mean, this is Bob's book in a nutshell, right? And now here we are with the internet and now social media. I'm sure we're going to have the same thing with AI if we don't have it already and whatever's next. It's just, we've been fortunate every single time that at least, you know, in America, every single time the First Amendment and free speech principles have won out um, for the most part. I mean, you know, if you I mean if you watch tv today yeah and go back and watch tv when we were much younger yeah. and talk about our, you know parents got to watch on tv you know it's it, the world has changed i mean we've been fortunate but you have to wonder you know if we're not careful the way that the technology develops can be greatly impacted i mean if section 230 had not been put into place. We might have ultimately gotten to the same point. What Section 230 says is that if you run an online an – online, an interactive computer service and you host third-party content, you're not responsible for any liability that arises from the third-party content. You can't be treated as the publisher of that content. And – You know, that's what allows comment sections, right? And that's what allows ultimately social... Uploads
1: to YouTube and, yeah. Right,
2: and uploads to YouTube and ultimately all social media, because all social media is, is nothing but third-party content. If Section 230 hadn't existed, I have often envisioned an alternate history where we kind of get to the same point just under the First Amendment. Because you remember there's old cases about how you don't... What's what's the matter? Is yeah, topical?
1: Yeah, sorry. So there's been some miscommunication. I have a Twitter Space I need to start. Can I just like keep? Yeah. What which button, button do I press? The big red button at the top. Okay. I apologize. Guys. Okay. Sorry. our our videographer has uh, so needs to go
2: do a Save Twitter it for Space. Speech. I apologize. <laughs> we talked too long. Yeah. Yeah. So I envision like a an alternate history where we get there through the First Amendment, through doctrines like we don't hold bookstores responsible for selling books that might be libelous to somebody. I mean the 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 liability goes to the author or the publisher. It doesn't go to the the bookstore. I think we'd ultimately have gotten there. But would the internet have had the rapid growth that it experienced? And there, would there have been the critical mass of utility that drove investment mm-hmm. if 230 hadn't been there? No, and for, by the same th- principles, if you're going to start stepping in on social media or you're going to start stepping in on ai as it's coming around the bend now you got to be very careful not just to you know not infringe speech because of course that's that's you know and you know a, a, that's that's the whole game but also be careful even about if you know you can overcome those hurdles putting them there cuz it can actually alter the way the technology and the market develops
1: yeah yeah I, the interesting thing about this is as greg kind of mentioned at the top of this discussion about this case is, librarians have to determine age appropriateness for the books in the first place. So what the state is essentially doing here is offloading it to booksellers and then forcing them to do this very burdensome activity retroactively, and they might come to determinations that are different than yeah. librarians. And you have different age appropriate considerations depending on what sort of student that library serves, whether it's an elementary school student or a middle school student or a high school student. So. Um, you know and that's all that is separate from how vague and overbroad this particular law is in determining what
2: is um, well, and in that respect, it's depictions or descriptions of you know sexual conduct or sexual activity, however they define it, which means that you know I mean what catch catch her in the rye? Yeah. Mm-hmm. out right I mean, and you know, beloved i mean it's not just not just and it's not just the books that always show up on the banned book list. I mean, if you think about i mean arguably. You know, any discussion about sex, no matter how non-sexy, no matter how non-pr- non-prurient it is, no matter how innocuous or instructive, if it's in there, it comes out. Which, by the way, makes me wonder how they have sex ed in Texas with a textbook these days because by definition, wouldn't that qualify? Well, yeah. You could still
1: have the sex ed book. You'd just have to have a rating on it, presumably. So, you know. But anyway, guys, we went way over time. And we lost our, our videographer who had to go do some so, uh, Twitter space. Uh, I really appreciate it, Greg Lukianoff, of course, Woo-hoo. the president and CEO. Sign
0: up for my Substack.
1: Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression also coming out with his book in October with Ricky Schlott, which you should pre-order. It's available for pre-order now. And of course, Ronnie London, our general counsel here at Fire. I thank you Woo-hoo. both
2: for, for this. <laughs> sign up for my OnlyFans. No, 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 kidding, kidding. <laughs> uh, what a note end on.
1: Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs>